As you're taking your seat, you can go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are at the front right here. They're going to walk towards the back slowly. Just feel free to slip your hand up into the air. We'll make sure a Bible gets across to you. And uh, we want you to be able to follow along as we uh, go through God's Word together. But we also want you to be able to take this home with you. If you don't own a Bible, then this is our gift to you today. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word and Pray that even by the end of this service, you will see why it is so, so sweet and so important for your soul. I'm a, I'm a, a fan of history, and I'm a big fan of Winston Churchill, the, uh, the British Prime Minister during the Second World War. And so uh, a few years back now, there was a movie that was coming out that piqued my interest. It was called The Darkest Hour. I think it was released in 2017. And in that movie, it really detailed the early days of World War II, where Winston Churchill had to decide whether to negotiate with Hitler or to fight back against incredible odds. It was a moment upon which much of world history, looking back with hindsight, upon which much of world history actually pivoted or turned. And what took place in that moment would probably decide life for thousands or millions of people for generations to come, including us today. It made me think that there have been many dark hours in human history upon which so much turns or depends. Maybe there's been some dark moments in your own life upon which much depends, Times maybe where it feels so dark and and hopeless, where you feel so lost, where it feels like that the darkness will not lift or the pain just won't go away. Perhaps it's the, the darkness of your circumstances, the loss of a loved one, heartache in your family. Maybe it's the darkness caused by your own sin. But you see, it's the deepest darkness that provides the best backdrop upon which the brightest light can shine forth. It's in those darkest moments where sometimes the light that bursts forth is most brilliant, most potent, most powerful. We see that here in Genesis chapter 3, and at this point in human history, it is certainly the darkest hour. Some might even argue that this has been the darkest hour in all of human history, the moment where Adam and Eve rebelled against God, turned their back on His good authority and loving kindness toward them, ate from the tree producing separation between God and humanity, bringing about the judgment of God, the just judgment of God on the earth. This indeed is an incredibly dark moment. But I think what we see here in this text today, that the darkness of this backdrop produces an incredible, incredible opportunity for the blazing light of God's grace to shine through. What we will see as we look at this passage is that indeed it is grace that shines forth. The darkness does not prevail. And this is a powerful reminder 
to us that in this broken world, listen, in our broken lives, in our darkest hour, in our darkest moments, God's grace is able to shine forth in power and in brilliant glory. And if that's true, the natural question is this, well, what does it look like for God's grace to shine forth? And then, how should I respond? I want to read the text for you, and then I want to give you three points regarding God's grace and our response. We'll begin in verse 20. It says this, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Here what we see is that in the darkest hour of humanity, God's grace shines forth. And I want to show you that first in God's merciful pardon. And our response is that we can live now by faith. Remember, God has just rendered his judgment upon the earth for human sin, but even as judgment falls, this grace bursts forth onto the scene, and we see that in some subtle ways, but very powerful ways as we pull this text apart. You see, in verse 20, what we see here is that Adam actually shows his understanding of God's grace and kindness toward him by naming his wife. You say, well, how, how does that demonstrate anything. Well, it really has to do so much with what he names his wife and why he names his wife what he names her. Interestingly, listen, up to this point in the story, there is no official name given for Eve. She is simply Adam. She is human, just like her husband. This is the first time in this story that we actually get a name for this woman. And it is Adam who gives her this name. It's interesting. You may have a little kind of note in your Bible. It tells you to drop down, and it explains to you the Hebrew term that is used for the name Eve. And it's it's a name that's derived out of this idea of life, though the word in Hebrew sounds very similar to life. And so the the sense here is this, that Eve's name actually means life or life-giver. This is what many commentators actually call Adam's act of faith. In other words, in naming his wife Eve, life giver, what he is doing is he is recognizing and embracing the promise that God has made. God had said that if they eat from the the tree, they will surely die, but then he's come along and as he's pronounced judgment upon the serpent, remember in Genesis 3.15? He told the serpent that the serpent would bruise the heel of the offspring of the woman, but the offspring or seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. 
In other words, death, death was not going to prevail. Life would continue only because of the merciful pardon of God. God would allow life to continue, and Adam here latches on to the promise of God. He believes it to the depth of his soul, and that is demonstrated in his response in naming Eve life. And I just need to reiterate this, that the reason Adam does this is because he gets God's grace. The name Eve celebrates the survival of the human race and its prophetic victory over death. The reformer, Philip Melanchthon, called Eve the seal of grace. So Adam here, he exhibits faith in God's promise of grace. Adam's declaration is this overwhelming shout of hope. I mean, it's the first, if we can say this, it's the first shout of the hymn of heaven. Death won't win. God is going to overcome the sin and destruction brought into the world, even by me. You can hear Adam, right? Adam knows he's responsible, and so his shout in naming Eve is, God, you are life. You are the giver of life, and your life can overcome death. And this is so powerful because in this moment, you hear what Adam is saying? I no longer have to live under guilt and shame and condemnation. That could be my plight for the rest of my life, knowing what I've done not only to me and to my wife, but to all the universe. And instead, God is coming alongside me and saying, it's okay. I'm going to take care of this problem. And you see, our, our call is actually to respond the same way that Adam responds to the grace of God. It is to live by faith in the good news of the promise that God has made about the seed of the woman. It's interesting, a lot of times people ask the question, well, how, how were people saved in the Old Testament? You know what the, the simple answer is? The same way we're saved in the New Testament. They're, they're saved by grace, through faith, in Christ. You say, but Christ isn't really there in the Old Testament yet, is he? Yes, he is. He's right here in Genesis 3.15. He is the promised seed. Can you make the connection? For Adam to believe in the promised seed, even though he doesn't know all that's going to transpire, even though he doesn't know how God is going to bring it about and what this individual is going to do to overcome sin and death, he believes in what God can do. He believes in the promised seed. Faith, notice this, came by hearing. And hearing, even in this case, as Paul would say, by the word of Christ. You see, we live by faith in the same way. We live by faith in the promised seed who would come to crush the head of the serpent, but instead of looking forward like Adam, we get to look backward to the cross. Amen? I mean, Adam looked in hope, believing that God would do it. We look back in confidence, knowing that God has already done it. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, the serpent slayer, and through the cross, through his death, he crushed not only the head of serpent, but he crushed his power and authority. He crushed death to death. It's fascinating, in, in John chapter 12, as Jesus looks towards the cross, 
Here's what he says to his disciples. He says, now is the ruler of this world cast out. It's like, in the cross, we, we say this all the time, but it's like Satan has been defanged. It's like the, the, the king has, has lost all of his power and authority. He's no longer what he used to be. In fact, Revelation chapter 12 There is this picture of Michael, the the archangel, throwing Satan out of heaven. That's an awesome picture. And it's, again, it's as if Satan can no longer do what he was doing. And that's not to say that Satan is not a formidable foe. He he is, and he's he's, he's not to be trifled with, and and we don't treat him like he's this weak, pathetic being. He's not. He's powerful, but listen, he is nothing compared to our God. Our God has ripped the weapons out of his hands. And Satan can't do what he used to do. You know what his greatest weapon was against you, Christian? Listen, his greatest weapon has always been accusation. You realize that? Even now, Satan wants to use the weapon of accusation against you. He wants to come alongside and say, you aren't worthy of being saved. You're, look at you. Look how pathetic you are. Look how sinful you are. Look how wicked you are. You deserve to be justly condemned forever. You're of no value to God. But you see what, what Revelation 12 and what John 12 are telling us is that Satan can no longer accuse us the way he, he used to. You know, like, like he used to in Job chapter 1 when he would enter into the, the courtroom of God and accuse the servants of God. Can't do that anymore. Or Zechariah chapter 3 where he, he accuses the high priest Joshua before God. Revelation 12.10 says this, Rejoice, brothers, for the accuser of our brethren is thrown down. He has no more standing in the heavenly courts. And if you're a believer in Jesus, his accusations against you are not being heard by the Father. Isn't that awesome? They have no standing before the throne of God. And you want to know Why? Because if you are a believer today, you are under grace, not under sin. There's now, now therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the way that you stand under grace is by faith in what God has done. So believe in Christ and what he has accomplished. That's the message of this first passage. Be like Adam who says, yes, I I, I need to be saved. I can't do it myself. I need God to do it for me. And what you find is that in the midst of the darkest hour, grace can shine forth in your life. Secondly, notice that it shines forth in God's costly provision. We are forgiven through sacrifice. You see, the question is, well, how can God mercifully pardon us? How can God remain holy and perfect and just? He has to punish our sin. It's fascinating what God does here in verse 21. 
It says, and the Lord God, notice this, notice who's doing the acting, okay? Notice who is doing, who's the active party here. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God made garments, and then God draped those garments over Adam and Eve. Some have called these grace garments. I like that. And remember, you have to contrast this with what they were wearing at the time. I think it, this makes it incredibly, incredibly powerful. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned and they tried to hide themselves from God? Do you remember what the first thing they did was? They made clothes. They realized they were naked. In other words, they were ashamed. All of a sudden, sin made them ashamed. They sensed their guilt. They sensed their condemnation. And so what did they do? They tried to cover it. They took fig leaves, and they stitched together loincloths. And, and, and here's why. Meager kind of coverings over their, their shame, and they're trying to hide themselves. It's man's first attempt at self-salvation. I'll, I'll cover my sin. I'll deal with my sin. I'll fix my problem. And you know, it's, it's fallen humanity's natural inclination to try to deal with sin apart from God. This is, this is fallen man's response to sin time and time again. Even if you're a Christian, you know this as well as I do. This is very often our fleshly sinful response, isn't it? Something in us doesn't run to owning our sin. It runs to hiding our sin covering, excusing, justifying, attempting to undo or maybe provide some kind of adequate payment through good works, religious rituals, some kind of reparations, whatever it may be, some attempt is made to resolve the problem that now exists. But, but here's what we read in the Scriptures right from the beginning, but Paul picks this up, that the wages of sin is death. The only satisfying payment that will do is a life, a life for a life. But the real problem here is that the payment that is required is a perfect life, a perfectly holy, righteous life, an unblemished life, a sinless life, a spotless life, an innocent life. And the problem with that is that we don't have it because we can't undo our sin. We try, right? We try to make up for our sin with righteousness. We try to balance out the scales, but the problem is we don't need balance scales or even tipping scales. We only need one thing, perfection. No sin, only obedience. Their self-made attempts to cover themselves in inadequate fig leaf loincloths, this is beautiful, they're replaced by clothing made by God. And here, the idea here is that, that they're skins of an animal, and the word actually refers to not a meager covering, but a, a tunic. Same word that's picked up in the, the rest of the Old Testament for the word tunic or robe. So think about it. Here's Adam and Eve with these meager little loincloths trying to hide themselves, trying to cover what they can't fully cover. And God comes along and he produces these beautiful garments, robes that cover them from head to toe. The first time this word garment is used is actually in reference to Joseph. 
where his father gave him that beautiful coat. A coat that was supposed to symbolize honor, love, blessing. Here, this word is actually used most often. If you trace this word throughout the Old Testament, it actually refers most often to the garments that the priests wore in the temple. There's priestly overtones here. It's fascinating reality. This word clothed here, so, so there's the garments and then God clothed them. The word clothed is the same word that's used when God instructed Moses to clothe Aaron, the high priest, and his sons with garments fit for their responsibilities of mediating God's presence to the people. And many have, have seen this and picked up on this, but God's provision here of, of robes of animal skin, it, it recognizes both their sin and was at the same time this, this magnificent act of grace. You see, God's action here was this gracious foreshadowing of the ultimate sovereign provision for sin. And later on, no, no priest, no Levitical priest who served in the temple could read this passage without making this connection. Adam and Eve didn't have the full understanding of what later authors of Scripture would reveal. But later on, listen, in Leviticus 7 verse 8, every priest would read that passage and make a connection back here, connecting it with the atonement because the skins of the animals that were slain in sacrifice were given to the priests for their use. You say, what are you saying? Well, I'm just trying to tell you what God says. Listen, you need to be covered by God for your sins. God needs to slay something. Something pure and innocent needs to die in your place so that your sin can be covered and you can actually appear righteous before God. Sin requires, though, here's the key, a sacrifice that only God can provide. Only God can clothe us and cover our sin and shame. In other words, you, you will never be able to clothe yourself like God clothes you. In all your attempts to cover your sin with your fig leaves, whatever they may be, they're always going to be inadequate, and God is always saying, let me clothe you. Let me do what you can't do. And accepting this is the first step to receiving God's grace. You can't actually receive God's grace until you first believe, listen, how wicked of a sinner you actually are. You can't actually be saved from your sin until you realize that your sin is such a great offense against a holy, mighty God that only the provision of another life in your place will do, and it's something you could never, ever provide until you come to the end of yourself and you recognize that you're in desperate need of God to do for you what you could never do for yourself. You cannot be saved. But if you get there, listen, if you get there, you're one step away from receiving and enjoying the grace of God. A brilliant 19th century Scottish preacher named Marcus Dodds, he was also the principal of a of new college in Edinburgh University, he makes these observations. This is a bit of a long quote, so I put it up on the screen Follow along with me. He says this. He says, It is also to be remarked that the clothing which God provided was in itself different from what man had thought of. Adam took leaves from an inanimate, unfeeling tree. God deprived an animal of life that the shame of his creature might be relieved. This was the last thing Adam would have thought of doing. Think about that. 
To us, life is cheap and death familiar, but Adam recognized death as the punishment of sin. Death was too early to early man a sign of God's anger, and he had to learn that sin could be covered not by a bunch of leaves snatched from a bush as he, is, as he, has, as he passed by, but only by pain and blood. Sin cannot be atoned for by any mechanical action or without expenditure of feeling. Suffering must ever follow wrongdoing. From the first sin to the last, the track of the sinner is marked with blood. It was made apparent that sin was a real and deep evil, and that by no easy and cheap process could the sinner be restored. Men have found that their sin reaches beyond their own life and person, that it inflicts injury and involves disturbances and distress, that it changes utterly our relation to life and to God, and that we cannot rise above its consequences save by the intervention of God himself, by an intervention which tells us of the sorrow he suffers on our account. You see, this divine provision is pointing towards the ultimate divine provision. An entire sacrificial system will be set up to communicate this point. Something pure and spotless has to die in the place of sinners so, so, so you don't die. Your sin deserves to be punished. It must be punished because God is a, a holy and just God, but He's also merciful and filled with grace, and He's willing to actually substitute something in your place that doesn't deserve to be punished, but will take your punishment for you. Only God covers sin and shame. And, and loved ones, listen, we, we forget this. Even as Christians, we forget this. You, know, you ever wonder how you, you, know, you keep just living in sin or you keep walking down paths of sin? I think one of the reasons is because we forget how costly God's provision was. I mean, it's free for us. This is, this is the paradox. It's free for us. It costs us nothing, and yet, and yet it costs God everything. It costs God His own Son. It costs God leaving the glory that, that He existed in for all eternity past, stepping into our sin-cursed world, receiving mock and scorn and torture and death at the hands of sinners that He came to save. See, in Christ, God holds out the gift of the precious robe of righteousness. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? What we see here in the very first few chapters of Genesis is what we now know in the gospel. God actually says, listen, let me take your sin, place it on Jesus in your place, and then let me take the righteous robe of Jesus, his perfect obedience, and let me drape it over you so that you can be covered from head to toe and stand before God in confidence, not fear. So that you can have life. In fact, in Revelation 19, verse 6 through 8. Let me just read it for you. This is a scene in the throne room of heaven. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Now just listen. If you're in Christ, if you're in Christ today, John, the writer of Revelation, is hearing you in this moment. So this is, just think about this. This is you one day. John's already heard it. I don't know how, but he's heard it. And here's what he says. Listen to this. 
the thunder. They're crying out like a loud, there's like mighty peals of thunder. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her, the bride, us, the people of God, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That's not the righteous deeds that were done by the saints. It was the righteous deeds that were imputed and credited to the saints by the work of Jesus Christ. All the way back in chapter 7, verse 14 of Revelation, it says that those clothed in in white robes had washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Grace, grace shines forth in this moment. Even in the darkest hour, Grace shines forth. So let me just ask you today, are you confident that you have been clothed and the precious righteousness of Jesus Christ? Have you believed upon the gospel? Have you rejected any attempt on your own to try to save yourself or cover your sin? Have you come to the end of yourself and you just cast yourself upon the mercy and grace of God? Have you looked upon the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you seen him upon the cross bleeding and dying for you? Have you received the garments of righteousness that only God can provide. If so, listen, if so, are you rejoicing in it today? Are you celebrating every day that, that, listen, you stand not under sin and condemnation, but you stand in the grace of the gospel? It's nothing for you to do to earn God's favor, to earn God's acceptance. You are accepted because you are robed in the righteousness of Christ. You are in him. He is in you. And if that is you, then live in it. Be who you are. As Paul would say in Romans, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. You see, what we're given here is not just a reminder of how awesome the gospel is. We're actually given here the fuel for how to live the Christian life. We, 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 we rest in the gospel. We go back to the gospel. We're reminded that we are robed in the righteousness of Christ. And then you know what you do every single day? We get up and we put on the garments of grace. We put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We strap on the armor of God, which is the gospel. And we march forward. And we declare to people that they too can be made right with God, not because of anything they have done, but only because of what God has done in Christ Jesus. Amen? Lastly, even in the darkest hour, grace shines forth in God's ongoing presence. Our response is that we must wait in hope. Verse 22, we learn something about life before the fall. It says, And the Lord God said, Behold, The man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. There's this inter-Trinitarian 
divine discussion that takes place. God deliberates with God. And he's reflecting on the the new nature of humanity, and what you need to hear here is, is, yes, there's some judgment. They're being exiled from Eden, but what you have to see, especially in verse 22, that all of this is grace. You see, grace, I don't understand. Well, you see, there's a problem that now exists in this new fallen condition. Do you remember back in chapter 2, if you were here with us, we looked at the, the tree of life. And one of the things that we saw there was that God placed them in this garden, but Adam and Eve were not initially created, and we we know this already in Scripture, they're not immortal. They're mortal beings, and part of the way they continued to live on with this kind of eternal existence was through the tree of life. And so I I need you just to think for a minute now, what happens if Adam and Eve can now go back in this fallen, corrupt, sinful condition and eat from the tree of life? They will live forever in this new fallen, sinful condition. And this, this is, it's the walking dead. They will continue to be alive but dead. And I mean that in the spiritual sense. They they will continue to, remember, remember the point of the garden. They They were to continue in the presence of God, but now forever. Listen, if God isn't merciful and gracious to protect them from the tree of life, they would spend all eternity longing for, groping for, something they could never, ever grab hold of, the presence of God in all its fullness and beauty. And you see, it's, it's in this sense that actually death becomes a sort of grace, an exit from our sinful existence. I, like how, how many times, I maybe this is just me, uh, the longer I live as a Christian, the more I see my sin, the, the more I struggle and trip up, even on a daily basis, the more I'm like, God, would you please come back just so I can stop struggling with sin? It's just, I hate it. Could you imagine you had to live forever like this? Isn't it the grace of God that if you're in Christ, listen, that death is not the end, it's the doorway into everlasting life. And, and that doorway, listen, when it's opened and you walk through, this is, this is amazing. You're going to walk through into an eternal existence where you will never struggle with sin again. You will never feel the effects of sin in your body or upon your soul. You're never going to shed a tear because of pain in this life and the brokenness of this world. Never again. So God prevents them from accessing the tree of life. They're exiled from the garden. They're driven out, and at the east side of the garden, God stations a cherubim, uh, an angel, a warrior angel, and a flaming sword. And look it, he does it to guard it. And the lesson, in, in one sense, needs to be this. Listen, that this is exactly what sin does. Sin bars us from enjoying the greatest of all pleasures, the presence of God. This is what David said, right? In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David is longing. He's longing for that moment that was lost in the garden. 
the exile was awful, but it was also grace. The garden, remember, had been a holy of holies. We talked about this when we studied Genesis 1 and 2. It was like a cosmic temple. And the point of the temple was that in the holy of holies, God's presence dwelled in all of its fullness. It was the original divine space where heaven and earth touched Adam and Eve, they, they lived there. I don't know how long. Maybe it was, it was forever so brief a moment, but for however long they were there, just think about this, they were constantly gazing at the glorious face of God. They soaked in his, his presence. They, they were breathing it in every moment of every day. Now, now they're exiled from the garden, and the cherubim is there with a flaming sword. They must have felt like they were spiritually drowning. Just longing for a breath of God's presence. And life would go on outside the garden. Adam would be sent out to work and keep the ground. Life would go on. The mission would go on. But it would be so much harder. And it would always be a reminder that this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the way it's supposed to be. They would always be feeling like they were never truly home. And in the meantime... We see, listen again, God's grace shines forth here. Because God would not take his presence away forever. And in fact, better than that, God is actually giving them a way to taste his presence in an ongoing way. Not the fullness of his presence that they once enjoyed, that will always be in front of them, and it will never be possible again until they receive death and ultimately resurrection. But in the meantime, God's presence would still remain with them in part. The, the whole scene points to the establishment of the tabernacle and the temple. And I hope you caught that, the priestly language. I mean, all this language is setting up for the tabernacle and the temple where the presence of God would dwell in a more concentrated way, where they could enter in one person one time a year, the high priest, by a, the blood of a sacrifice, could enter in to the presence of God in a concentrated way. I mean, just think about what we've seen already. The animal has to be slain. There's the sacrificial system. The garments that would be given to clothe the priest, the priest who would mediate the presence of God for the people. But there's more than that. The cherubim, the cherubim are, are, are set up. You can just read about this in Leviticus as it describes the tabernacle and the temple and the Ark of the Covenant. Do you remember what, what, what is on the top of the Ark of the Covenant? Two cherubim that's wings touch as if they're guarding the Ark of the Covenant. The Holy of Holies in both the temple and tabernacle, guess what they had stitched into the, the fabric of the curtain? Cherubim. A reminder that men couldn't just walk into the presence of God. It was being guarded and protected. They're exiled again to the east of Eden. Guess what side the entrance of the temple is on and the tabernacle? It's on the east side. This is all set up to describe for us how God's ongoing presence is still going to be a reality for humanity and how God will one day come and fulfill it in Christ. The Bible from the Garden of Eden to the, the ultimate garden, the holy city at the end of the Bible, is a story of grace. 
The garden is this holy space. And together with the tabernacle and temple, with their holy of holies, they present this beautiful unity in the scripture that finds its culmination in the new heavens and the new earth. You say, what is this telling us? It's just, it's reminding us, listen, that we we are made for the holy place. It's reminding us, this, this world's not our home. You feel like you don't belong, especially as a Christian? <laughs> you feel like you're a sojourner, a stranger, an alien, you're just kind of wandering through the wilderness. That's good. You are, listen, you need to hear this. Some of you need to hear this today. You are not supposed to feel like this world is your home. You are made for a holy place. You are made for God. We are built from the very beginning to experience the presence of God. And all of it is saying that though sin, listen, has barred man's access to the fullness of God's presence, in God's grace, we're being told here that it will not be that way forever. Because the fullness of God's presence, listen, entered into our sin-cursed world. Grace shines forth. John 1.14 says that the Word became flesh and dwelt, literally tabernacled among us. Jesus saw himself as the fulfillment of the tabernacle and the temple. In the very next chapter of John's gospel, Jesus says this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. He saw his own body as the temple and the resurrection as proving his authority. Finally, in Revelation 21 verse 22, it tells us that God himself is the temple. What's interesting is that, you know, they're barred from eating from the tree of life. If you read the end of the story, in Revelation chapter 22, verse 2, in the new heavens and new earth, we get a description of a a new river and a new tree. I'm going to read from verse 1 through verse 5. Just, just listen. This is, this is what awaits. This is what we wait and hope for. It says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Remember Eden. River flowing through it. Bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God. That is the source of all life right there. The throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life. I want you to think about this. I don't know exactly what this looks like. I got a vision in my head. I'm not sure it's accurate. But there's this river, and I want you to see it's not just one tree, but two trees. It's Eden 2.0. And the symbolism here, I don't know if this is a literal tree or not. I don't think we have to eat from a literal tree to live forever. I think, you know, what Paul says is true, that one day this this mortal body is going to shed its, its mortality and is going to be placed or robed with immortality. I think what this is describing for us is this. There's a day coming. Listen, loved ones. There's a day coming and a place ahead of us 
where the tree of life exists, and all who are present there will dwell forever in the house of the Lord. They will dwell forever, immortal. They won't be like the first Adam. They'll be like the second Adam. They will be like the one who conquered sin and death and who death no longer can destroy. It had 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. You bet they will. Why? Listen, this is awesome. Listen. Connect this to your mind from Genesis chapter 3. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. The darkest hour will be over. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Grace shines forth. This is not the darkest hour, believe it or not. There is an hour that was darker than them all. It's described in the Gospels as Jesus hung on the cross. We're told that darkness covered the earth. Because in that moment, judgment would fall not on us, but on Jesus for us. He would be made sin so that we could be made righteous. Grace would shine forth in the most dazzling display of glory. Jesus Christ, God in flesh, Savior of the world, would suffer and die for us. And in that moment, listen, the curtain would be torn in two from top to bottom. The cherubim would fall to the floor and access into God's presence will be accomplished through the finished work of Jesus Christ. He would be the source of our merciful pardon, the one upon whom we look and live by faith. He would be our costly provision. We can be forgiven fully and freely only by his substitutionary sacrifice, robed in his perfect righteousness. He would be God's ongoing presence, not simply dwelling with us, but dwelling in us And it is for the fullness of his presence that we wait in hope, as Peter says, waiting for his glorious appearance. 